Bibles to Psalm 90, Psalm 90, and let me just pray again as we come to study the Word of God. Lord, we need, we need to hear from you right now. We need to hear about your constancy in our constantly changing circumstances. And Lord, we, we look to you and we take incredible comfort in your perfections, um, your goodness, your wisdom, your control, your knowledge of all things, your plan. And Lord, as we are frail, we are called to look upon you for our stability and our security. And so we ask in a special way, you bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word to our hearts in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read Psalm 90 together. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Yahweh, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen, to- seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen. This is the word of the living God. May he write its truth on our heart. Imagine that there is a bank that credits your account each morning with $86,400. It carries over no balance from day to day. Every evening, it deletes whatever part of the balance you failed to use during the day. And so you have nothing for the, uh, to, to, to carry over. What would you do? Well, of course, you would draw out every cent that you could each day. And you would use it all. Each of us has such a bank. It is the bank of time. 
Every morning it credits you with 86,400 seconds. Every night it writes off as, as lost. Whatever of this you have failed to invest in good purpose. It carries over no balance. It allows no overdraft. Each day it opens a new account for you. Each night it burns the remains of the day. If you fail to use the day's deposits, the loss is yours. There's no going back. There is no drawing against tomorrow. You must live in the present on today's deposits and invest it to derive the utmost from, from it. The clock is running. Make the most of today. End quote. This is an anonymous uh, uh, poem or of sorts um, that uh, has been written on the subject of time. And time is the subject of our psalm. Psalm 90 is about time. There's lots of different ways that's indicated to us. Uh, repetition of words like days, years, God's eternality, the shortness of life. Uh, 24 times in these 17 verses, the words, words for time set the theme. And it's the beginning of a new year and a new season. It is a good time for us to reflect and recalibrate our lives. And even in times of great distress to look to this psalm, a psalm of Moses to find uh, the help we need from the character of God. We don't know ever what is coming in the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year. We don't know what 2024 is going to bring into our lives. We don't know if 2024 will be our last year or not. It may be our last year. We don't know. But we ought to evaluate the way in which we are using the precious minutes that God has given us. We should look not to the years we might have, but to the days we might have and to maximize them for the glory of God. We want our short lives to count, to not be wasted. And this psalm helps us to not waste our short lives, but to make them count for God. It also helps us to prepare for the inevitable, that all of us will die, that all of us will face death eventually. This psalm begins the fourth book of the Psalms. There's five books of the Psalms. Um, each of them end with kind of a sort of a doxology. And then usually in your English Bible, there is some indication of the beginning of the new book. It'll probably say above Psalm 90, book four. And so this is the fourth of five books uh, compiled of the Psalms. And this psalm is written by Moses. We're, we're told its author. This would make it the oldest psalm in the Psalter. Now you remember the psalms weren't written in chronological order, like the, from when they were written. Otherwise, Psalm 90 would be Psalm 1. But rather, they were put together in some ways thematically um, to develop a theme. And uh, yet this is likely one of the earliest, it is the earliest composed psalm but it may be one of the oldest pieces of scripture, depending on, you know, you know Job was written first, Moses then writes the, the Torah, but depending on when he actually wrote this, sometime likely around the wilderness wandering of the children of Israel, now this is a very old piece of scripture. Now the time frame, like we said, is the, the, the wilderness generation. As Israel is bouncing around in screensaver mode in the wilderness, uh, this is the time Moses likely writes this. As many people are dying in Israel, some estimate one million, some two million people in Israel at this time uh, that had come out of Egypt and that are wandering in the wilderness. If that's the case, because of their unbelief and unwilling to go into the land, God said that whole generation was gonna die. 
God was gonna wait for them to, to die out. And so let's just use the term two million. If there were two million people over the age of 20 who would have received this death sentence in the wilderness and that is gonna die in the next 40 years, that would be about 50,000 people dying each year, 1,000 people dying each week, and 135 people dying every day. Moses is very well acquainted with death. Moses has done many funerals. And he's an expert when it comes to the shortness of life. And so, Moses writes this song, and he writes it in light of this generation, and about the subject of time, and there's all these contrasts between the character of God and the character of finite man. You have the eternal God and you have the ephemeral man. You have the sovereign God and you have the, the, the servant uh, children of God. You have the justice and wrath of God and the sinfulness of man. You have the goodness of God and the dependency of man. In the psalm, we see all these different attributes of God, and I think it's a helpful way for us to walk through the psalm, to use that, those as our anchor points as Moses walks us through uh, and gives us stability with the attributes of God as we think about the shortness of our lives and how we might best use our lives. I think the best way to think about our time that we have been given is through the lens of God. It is through the lens of the character and perfections of God that really gives us the proper perspective we need to redeem the time, to view our lives, however long or short God may give it to us. So we want to look at four perfections of God to contemplate in view of the shortness of our time. We're going to see the eternality of God, the sovereignty of God, uh, the wrath or the justice of God, uh, and the grace and goodness of God. So let's first consider the eternality of God in verses one and two. It's a, song, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses was a songwriter uh, beyond this. He wrote Psalm 90, of course. He wrote Exodus 15 after they crossed the Red Sea. Deuteronomy 32 is another song of Moses. Maybe he wrote others, but these are the main ones we have recorded for us. He begins here with showing us where our home address is and where it always remains. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. A dwelling place is a refuge. It's a, it's a home, home base. You finish this sentence. Home is where the, yeah, right? Moses would probably say, home is where the Lord is. Home is where the Lord is. He is our constant. And this is significant considering who's saying it. Uh, of course, Moses is seeing a lot of death in the wilderness, but not only that, Moses has traveled a lot in his lifetime. You could split up Moses' life into three eras of 40 years. His first 40 uh, are in Egypt. His second 40 are in Midian. Uh, and then his last 40 he gets called into ministry and he leads the people of Israel out of Egypt and they wander in the wilderness during that time. It's an incredible life that Moses leads. Of course, he writes the first five books of our Bibles, but he is a traveler. He is a sojourner all over the place, just as Israel would be. He had no permanent home for much of his life. 
And so the Lord was Moses' dwelling place despite all the places he had lived. A point of this idea of God being our dwelling place is that he is our security. He's our ultimate place of refuge and stability. Only, the only true human security that we can find is in God. It doesn't mean we don't try to have other wise decisions for security in our lives, but ultimately our dependence can't be in those things, whether they be in relationships, money, the military, alarm systems, guns. Those all may be wise things to, to, to have in place, but truly God is our ultimate security and dwelling place. Alec Motier says that God is our fixed address. He's our fixed address. Is God your home right now, your refuge Why can he be this for us? Well, look at verse two. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You know, if if you want to look to the creation for that which is lasting and that which is stable, a good place to look are the mountains. The mountains. If these hills could talk, Right? You have the stability of these, these rocks, these massive rocks that have always been there, so we think. They, they symbolize the lasting and dependable nature of these features. But Moses says, before these were brought forth, or given birth to by the earth, God was already there. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses writes in Genesis 21 as he recounts story of Abraham and he tells us about Abraham in Genesis 21, verse 33. He says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. He plants a tree and he calls on the everlasting God. There has never been a time when God was not God is older than dirt. God is the only being who has not been created. He's always been, always will be. He is the only constant in an ever-changing world. Father, Son, and Spirit, always existing in perfect harmony, fellowship, love, and happiness. And Moses gets this. You remember Exodus 3, verse 14, as God appears to him in the burning bush that requires no fuel to be sustained because God is his own fuel to sustain himself. And God tells him, here's my name, I am, I am. I will be who I will be. And he is the God who simply exists. And so he knows God to be this way, to be the God who is eternal. It's one of the implications of the name I am. Think of the hymn, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Has God been your help in years past? Yeah, we could think of those things. We could recount those things. Maybe in this last year, he is your hope for years to come. He's your hope today and for tomorrow. We need a constant God to endure the constantly changing circumstances of our lives. Things are always changing in our world, but God is the one who does not change and cannot change. 
God will never change on you, no matter how much change comes in your life. He will always be there for you. William Barrick writes this, the eternal God is the only source of hope for an ephemeral man. So here's the eternal God that Moses looks to for our ever-changing lives. Secondly, he looks to the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God in verses three to six. Look at verse three. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Here Moses shifts and begins to look at not only the eternal God, but the, the passing, short-lived human being. And, but he focuses on God still, and he says, God, you return man to dust. Uh, this speaks to God's sovereignty over our time and over our death. It is at God's command that we return to dust. Listen to some other passages that corroborate this reality. Job 14, verse five, since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Deuteronomy 32, 39, see now that I, even I am he, there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal and there's none that can deliver out of my hand. Or Psalm 139, verse 16, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God has a book for each of us. It's got all of our days written in it and everything that will occur in them. Acts 17, verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, not only how long you live, but where you live and when in history you will live. All of this has been appointed by the sovereign God. And he says, you return man to dust. This dust takes us back to Genesis 3, verse 19. As Adam and Eve have sinned, and now we see the consequences of that. Genesis 3, verse 19, it says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We are all born with the fuse already lit. We don't know how long it is, but God knows. He has determined that in his wisdom. And so in contrast to God, who always has been and always will be, man returns to the dust Look at verse four. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Whether you live to the 969 years of Methuselah nearing a thousand years old. Goodness. <laughs> That's cool. You get really good at piano in that time. You know, <laughs> or whatever skill you set your hand to. Or the 120 years of Moses. Or anything or any other age all are like but three or four hours to the eternal God. Of course, we think of 2 Peter 3, 8, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Perspective. Moses gives us perspective on time. It depends what kind of being you are. If you're a finite creature, a thousand years is very long. If you're the eternal God who is not bound by time, who's, who's not controlled by time, it's just a few hours. And, and even that is, is language to help us understand that God is not even affected by time. He's in, in the ever-present now. 
seeing all history as one present now. A watch in the night is like three or four hours. You know what it's like when you, you wake up in the middle of the night and you're tossing a little bit and you, you check the clock. You should never do that. Don't check the clock. You're gonna mess with your brain, right? <laughs> just, just, just say, it doesn't matter. So you check the clock and then you kind of like pass into sleep again. Then you wake up and you check and it's like four hours later or three hours later. That's like a watch in the night. And he says, that's what, that's what our lives are like. And he, when you're a kid, things seem exponentially long. A road trip. And you think, oh, are we there yet? And you're just waiting. You know, it's like, how long have we been driving? Has this been like four hours or like 20 minutes? You know, we're not even to Tifton yet. You know, it's like, uh, and uh, now we have iPads. Road trips are so much easier. You know, it's like, how long ago was Jesus alive? Around 2,000 years. It's like a weekend, you know, Moses is saying for God. But it's not even like a weekend because God isn't bound by time. He's trying to help us though. In contrast, the eternality of God, man is mortal, transitory, brief, passing, temporary, momentary, short-lived. And then look at verse five. He says, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. Once again, Moses acknowledges it is God who gives and takes life at the proper time. He says, you sweep them away. And then he gives three images for our temporary lives. A flood, a dream, and the grass. Our lives are like a flood. You cannot stop a flood, and you cannot stop your time of your impending death. We should all seek out lives of good stewardship of our bodies. We should all pursue uh, what we can to preserve our lives. There is great benefit, common grace that God has given in medical technology. And we pursue that. We seek to extend our lives and, and that's, that's totally appropriate. But no medical technology can stay God's hand when it is time, when God has said it is time. And so the, we're, we're not unbalanced in this, you know, right? We don't say like, well, God has determined my days, so I'm just gonna do nothing and I'm gonna eat Doritos and drink Coke every day, you know, whatever, you know, it's like, uh, and that's all my diet's gonna be, just whatever tastes good, you know, I'm not gonna work out, exercise, you know, that's gonna lead to a early uh, death, right? Um, typically speaking, you know, and so we want to use the resources God has given and be wise, but at the same time, no amount of care of our bodies will keep us longer than God has determined. Now, we don't know that day, so we, we're wise, we're good stewards, but we know God has determined this. And it, like a flood, it can't be stopped. It, we're like a dream, a dream. I mean, think about your dreams. Did you have any dreams last night? You probably did. You just maybe can't remember them. Um, sometimes I, if I have a, a very vivid dream, I'll try and tell Ashley like right away because I forget by, you know, lunchtime or before that, it just goes away. And then she'll remind me of what I said. I'm like, that was my dream? That happened? I saw What? Because I don't even remember halfway through the day. It's just there and gone. It's like, oh, what, what was I just dreaming about? I, I can't remember. And he's saying, that's like your life. It's there. It's so vivid. And then it's gone. Forgotten. The grass. Look at verse six. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. Spurgeon has a great quote on this in his commentary on the Psalms. He says, here is the history of the grass. Sown Grown, blown, moan, gone. And the history of man is not much more. Hey, I love Spurgeon. Moses shows us the frailty of our lives, how short they are, and we're led to ask the question, 
Why? Why is it like this? Why do we die and why are our lives so short? He's going to give us that answer in the next verses. But what a comfort to know that our lives are in the hands of a sovereign God. Would you rather them be not in the hands of a sovereign God? To not be ruled and controlled by a good God, wise God? That they would just be left up to what we might call chance? No, there's no chance. Everything falls into the providential working of God and a comfort it is to us. Listen to Ecclesiastes chapter three. This is a, a, a profound chapter. It, it begins with a poem about time. And this is that famous passage, the time for this, the time for that, time for this, time for that. Um, there's a band, that secular band that made a song on this theme. But after the poem, Solomon gives prose to explain the meaning of the poem. And in verse nine of chapter three, he says this, what gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time, or appropriate is the idea. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man, what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upwards, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books because it is so sobering in some ways and so satisfying, right? He, Solomon is just in our face. Your life is short. It's like a vapor. It's like the steam on your coffee this morning. They're gone. I was watching the the frost in my backyard and, and our little pond and there's some of the steam coming up and it's like, they're gone. You know, the, the frost that was on my roof this morning will be gone when I get home. And our lives are, are somewhat like that. And, and so we, we get worried. We think, oh, it's so short. And Solomon also says, you're not gonna be remembered. People won't remember you. You'll be forgotten. Even your own family will, will likely forget you after a few generations. They won't remember what your name was or what your middle name was or what you did for a job. How many kids you had, you know, they'll just remember that they're there. And this is just the way it goes. And yet Solomon, at the same time, as sobering as that is, he helps course correct us to not pursue the wrong things. 
But rather he says, hey, enjoy. Enjoy what God does give. It's so satisfying. It's so liberating. He, he says, one commentator says, Ecclesiastes is, is this message. Life is gift, not gain. It's not for you to grasp at everything that you can get and leave, leaves, you know, a name for yourself. It is to glorify God, to fear God, obey his commandments, and enjoy what he gives. That's why Solomon, even in that passage, there's a lot of enigmas in life. Life is not only a vapor in that it is short-lived, but it's like smoke that you can't, you can't grab smoke and put it in your pocket. You grab it and it's just, it escapes you. And there's a lot of things in life that are enigmas that you can't figure out. And Solomon says, for the enigmas in life, you just trust God. You enjoy what he gives for as long as he gives it, right? A spouse, the gift of marriage. You enjoy your spouse for all those years and one day God calls time and he takes them and that's it. But Solomon knows that each of those days he gives has been a gift for however long it is. And so you take that and you enjoy that for God's glory in the way that God would have you. And so it's so liberating in so many ways. Moses gets that. Moses would like Solomon. They know each other now. And they're saying very much the same things. I guess you could say Solomon is saying what Moses said because they get the sovereignty of God and how he orchestrates our lives. And so it's for us to receive what he gives with thankfulness and joy. Well, why do we die? Why are our lives so short? This is our next attribute, the wrath of God or the justice of God. Verses seven to 11. Verse seven. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. Our lives are momentary and we die because of God's wrath and anger. There is a theological reason behind our death. And this only raises another question in our minds. Why is God angry and wrathful towards us? And this is what verse eight addresses. He says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. He's saying man's life is short because of God's wrath against sin. He talks about death because of our sin problem. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 or Romans 5.12 speaks about how death came into the world through one man's sin. God is angry and wrathful because of sin. Now, to be sure, uh, people, people's death is not always because of their personal sin, uh, but everyone's death is the result of Adam and Eve's sin, their parents' sin, their great, 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 great parents. It is that sin, that family sin of all of us that we, that has resulted in our death. Moses is saying, there's no secret sin with God. It's not as secret as you think. God knows it all. It's not as safe as you think because God knows it. It's not as satisfying as you think because it's the fleeting pleasures of sin. We die because of sin. The causes of death may be different, but the ultimate cause for death is always the same. It is the sin of Adam and Eve. But our sin is not only the reason for our death, but it's also the reason for life being hard. This is what verses nine and 10 address. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Oh, 
That's what he's saying. They're limited, like a sigh. Our lives are often end in suffering and pain with, with groaning. Jacob says this in Genesis 47, 9 to Pharaoh. The days of the years of my sojournings are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. Now he's, he's looking at the, the earlier years when people were living closer to a thousand years. The sighing of life. Verse 10, the years of our, li- of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Moses is witnessing, even then, the, the lifespan is kind of leveled out. You know, these super long lifespans before the flood. And then there's kind of like a bottleneck uh, at the flood um, where lifespans go way down. And then, of course, the Tower of Babel seems to be another bottleneck where a lot of people's lifespans go down from there. And they seem to have evened out, even though Moses lives to 120, he's seeing the average is somewhere between 70 and 80. And that seems to hold true for our day as well. And look at verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Idea he's getting at is who, who really acknowledges this? Who really acknowledges your the ferocity of your anger against sin. Who really fears God as they ought to? God's justice is a reflection of his goodness, that he is, he's good to, to, to deal with wrongdoing and, and evil according to the perfect standard of himself. And he is just to punish all sinners and death is the consequence of sin. But, but the psalm does not leave us there. Yes, Death is the result of our sin. And the, the sighing and troubles of our lives are also the result of, uh, of Adam's sin. I think I said our sin. Yeah, our collective you know, sin in Adam. But he doesn't stop there. He knows God is not, that God is simple. He's one. And that you, you can't just pull out one attribute. You see them all together. And so he brings in now the grace of God. We have to look at them individually, but they're one in God. They're like a diamond with facets that you just turn and see another and another. And so now he turns the diamond of God's character and he sees the character of the grace and goodness of God in these final verses. And it leads him to pray and make requests of this God who is gracious. The psalm ends with these three requests. First, he says, teach us to live our short lives wisely. Look at verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Now there's a connection I believe here. In verse 11, he talks about the, who fears you, the way you should be feared, God. And then here he talks in verse 12 about the, having a heart of wisdom, that we may get a heart of wisdom. It, it, this sounds similar to the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom is like skill, skill for living. Skill for living life well for the glory of God. How do we do that? by fearing God. That's the starting point. I think he, he's connecting these dots here as well. Job is the first one to say that. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Solomon will pick up on it later. Moses seems to get it as well here. The one who has a heart of wisdom is the one who fears God and thus orders their days in light of who God is. That's what we're trying to do in this. We're looking at the character of God and it's helping form how we would think about our lives here. It is the person who lives quorum Deo. It means before the face of God. We're living every day, every moment, as if we're right before God, as if we're right before the face of God, because we are. We are. 
because life is so brief, Moses prays for wisdom in numbering our days, to use his, his days the best he can. And he doesn't mean, you know, get out a calculator, do some math here, carry the one. To number our days is to understand and evaluate the brevity of our life and to invest the time we have in light of eternity. Of course, that, that factors in the gifts that God gives to enjoy, right? It doesn't mean that you don't ever do something that's relaxing to you or a hobby, not at all. But it means we steward the time we have here rightly. Those things are often refreshing for us to, to get back to what we're doing. And God gives us those times as well as a gift to enjoy. To number our days is to rightly assess the value of time and to use it for God's glory with a view to eternity. You can have the law of supply and demand, right? When there is a large excess of a commodity, its demand goes down, and thus the cost of it goes down. But when there's a little of a commodity, the demand goes up as well as its value. And we consider the supply of time we have in our lives, it, it is short. And we ought to value that time properly. You know, you have the same amount of hours in the day and minutes as the president or as anyone else, as, you know, the richest person in the world. We all have the same amount of time allotted to us. Anonymous writer said this, to realize the value of one year, ask a student who failed a grade. To realize the value of one month, ask a mother who's given birth to a premature baby. To realize the value of one week, ask the editor of a weekly newspaper. To realize the value of one hour, ask the lovers who are waiting to meet. To realize the value of one minute, ask a person who's just missed a train, or I guess an airplane. <laughs> to realize the value of one second, ask someone who has just avoided an accident. To realize the value of one millisecond, ask the person who won a silver medal at the Olympics. Yeah. Why do we need to be told to number our days? Well, because in, in part, we're prone to waste our days, to live not with this perspective. This is why it led Jonathan Edwards to write, oh God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. <laughs> I, I put in our bulletin, you know, Jonathan Edwards wrote all these resolutions for himself and um, those are fascinating to read. Here's one of them, resolution 52. He says, quote, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again, resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. Paul calls us to redeem the time in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 4. Steve Lawson writes this in his commentary, because God has numbered man's days, so all men must do the same. Man must be careful not to waste his life in temporal frivolities, but to invest it for eternity. And so it's a, it's a call for priorities in our lives. Priorities rightly aligned. Second, he prays, in, in light of the, the grace of God, satisfy us with, with, with God above all else. Look to verse 13. He says, return, O Yahweh, how long? Have pity on your servants. So the idea of returning as the idea of God turning from his anger and showing grace again. A request for mercy and grace from God in light of our frailty and our fallenness. Verse 14, he says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad 
all our days. So word steadfast love, it's variously translated. It's a very common word. A uh, word really for God's love, for his grace. It's sometimes translated loving kindness, steadfast love, loyal love. Um, it, it's, this, it's this term that's somewhat hard to put into one word because it encapsulates a lot. And it communicates that God is, he's faithful and he's loving. It's love with super glue on it, you know. Uh, and, and it encapsulates God's grace to us that we don't deserve it. And so he says, satisfy us, God, with your steadfast love in the morning. As we begin the day, we wanna be satisfied in God so we don't look for our satisfaction elsewhere. And so Moses wants his soul to find happiness and delight in God despite the sin-cursed world in which he lives. If God satisfies us with a true experiential knowledge of himself and his ways, then we will have joy despite our trials on this earth. St. Augustine said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts find no rest until they find rest in you. The psalmist prays in Psalm 43, 4, that God would be his exceeding joy. God must, we must seek to make God more to, he must be more to us than all that life could give or all that death could take away. And look at verse 15, make us glad. I love this verse. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. So much here. Notice these afflictions fall under God's sovereignty yet again. For as many days as you have afflicted us. Of course, we live in a fallen world. God is not the author of sin. And yet, he rules over all things and he uses all things for his purpose. And so we have, we've had days of affliction. And yet, all of it falls under God's sovereign hand. And he's saying, God, it's like balance it out. Make us glad for all the days that you have brought affliction into our lives. For as many years as we have seen evil. Give us blessing at least equal to our sufferings. And God is able to do this, to replace frustrations with satisfaction. Give us joy, God, even in the midst of our severe circumstances. This is what he prays for. Now look at verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Moses had seen incredible deeds of God and he, do, he doesn't want for it just to be theoretical for others. He wants God to show his work for others to see as well, for others to be satisfied in. And what we need most is to see God in his character and his works and enjoy what we see. This is what will satisfy us, the character of God, which is so masterful when it comes to Psalm 90 because this is what he's praying for. This is what Psalm 90 does. It puts God before us so that we're satisfied in who he is, even as he prays for that. Finally, he prays for our works to be established. For our works to be established. Verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Here is a prayer for God's gracious favor upon us. Think of favor. Favor, how do you get God's favor? Well, it's not deserved. It's not earned by your works. Favor comes purely by grace. And so this is a prayer for grace. That's why we're talking about the grace of God. Think ultimately, the eternal God became a man and died according to the sovereign plan and foreknowledge of God, experiencing the wrath and justice of God in the place of guilty sinners, not for his own sin, 
but for the sins of those who would, all those who would ever believe. So that by being united to him in faith and repentance of sins, we might know the eternal God eternally and enjoy his grace forever. It all comes together, pulled together in Psalm 90. We have a request here not only for forgiving grace, favor, but a request for empowering grace. God, establish our work. We can't achieve anything of eternal significance before this God apart from his work. It's like Jesus saying, apart from you, you can do nothing. I heard one preacher say, sometimes we think, we read that and we think, uh, like, apart from him, we just, we're not firing all cylinders. We still can get down the road. He's like, no, we can't do anything of significance. We, we talked about this verse recently in a, a passage, uh, I actually can't remember what sermon it was, but, but basically how God must do the work of salvation, sanctification, and glorification. And so we, we do what we are supposed to do, but we know that God must bring fruit. C.T. Studd was a famous athlete, cricket player in England, and uh, very wealthy. And uh, he, uh, after his career, ended up serving God in multiple mission fields, uh, multiple countries, and um, incredible life, a great encouraging biography. He's known for this incredible statement, really a poem, very long poem, very edifying poem, and, and he has this recurring line in it that he continues to say. He says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. He got it. He saw the ephemeral nature of man and yet a life lived in dependence upon God in enjoying the gifts of God and living for the glory of God. How are we spending our time? It would be wrong to think that being busy is being productive. You may be busy with the wrong things. Ecclesiastes 10.10 10 says, if the, iron is, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Think about that. How can we be, how can we be wise? It's skill. It's skill for a living. Like, you're, you're trying to chop some wood. You got this rusty old ax. I mean, you're just, you're just working yourself. <laughs> you know, it's, but you just sharpen that thing and it's like butter right through it. And that's what we want our lives to be. How do we gain wisdom? The fear of God. How do we get the fear of God? By knowing God. How do we know God? Through the scriptures. And so we sharpen our tool to live lives best, to enjoy the sweet things and to endure the hard things by knowing the scripture and having that perspective in all of it. So may God give us a heart of wisdom in these days. Paul says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And with a quote here, Steve Lawson, his commentary again, he has a great little closing statement. He says, quote, we are allotted by God only so much time, therefore must live strategically in light of eternity. Maybe you feel that you are going, going in aimless circles like Israel in the wilderness. Perhaps you are living with disappointment and despair. Maybe you are being squeezed into the tyranny of the urgent with all its pressing deadlines, but have lost sight of eternity. This psalm is intended to bring the eternal perspective back into focus in your life. It is designed to redirect you to live for the kingdom of heaven, not for the kingdoms of the world. It calls us to live every day for the approval of God, not for the applause of men. It directs us to be laying up for ourselves treasure in heaven, not riches on the earth. Wisely investing one's life requires living in light of eternity. It necessitates living with an eternal outlook on all of life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you 
We are needy people. We are dependent people. We're reminded in a, in a new, fresh way of our short lives, of our fragile lives. And yet, Lord, we, we must view them through the, the lens of your character. And this makes all the difference. Lord, you are our constant. Things constantly change in our lives. Circumstances, sometimes for the better, sometimes in a terrifying way. And Lord, we must look to you, the eternal God, who is changeless, who is always dependable then, who will never fall apart on us, who will always be there for us, and who is sovereign in directing our lives and the lives of others. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your justice and your grace. We thank you that you can bring us joy in difficult times, and even we know where our future is headed and that there will be far more causes for satisfaction in the new heavens and new earth and that will pale in comparison to the, the light momentary afflictions we have experienced. They, seem, they are so significant to us right now, Lord. And yet, Lord, they are part of your tapestry woven together that we might enjoy more of you and know more of you. It is humbling, Lord, and yet we pray that it would draw us closer to you be our constant, God. In Jesus' name, amen.